So a service animal is a dog that has been trained to help alleviate symptoms of a disability. And it's protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act, and it's required to be allowed in all public places. And so restaurants, stores, hotels, going to visit somebody at their house, et cetera. And then there's emotional support animals, and they're regulated by the Fair Housing Administration. And there are some exemptions to that. Welcome to the Journey to Multifamily Millions podcast. Start your journey today of building wealth through multifamily real estate investing. Listen to inspiring conversations with experts in the field from every step of the process. It doesn't matter if you are new to multifamily real estate or if you're already the savvy pro, we cover it all. And now your host, founder and CEO of Zana Investments, Tim Little. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Journey to Multifamily Millions. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Zana Investments, Tim Little. Today, we're going to be talking about something a little different, something that's still very relevant to apartment owners, investors, and tenants, pets. And the man who's going to help us break down that topic is Logan Miller. Logan is the president and founder of Our Pet Policy, a leading animal management software specializing in verifying emotional support animal documentation, detecting online purchased ESA letters, and educating tenants about why they are not considered reliable. For apartment owners, this all leads to more pets paying pet rent. Logan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Yeah, and it is great to have you. Like I said, this is an interesting topic. Before we dive too deep into that, I gave everyone a preview of your background, but I try not to give too much away. Please get into the details of how you got started on your journey and tell us how you got to where you are today. Yeah. And so in the rental, residential rental experience, as soon as I graduated from college, my first purchase was a duplex. And that's how I got into the market. And I surprised at how many, and we were renting to married college couples. And I surprised at how many of them wanted pets and how many of them were willing to pay for it at that point. And then fast forward several years later, um, we started to see an, an increased issue, especially around emotional support animals. In one property, we had an older couple and they had two emotional support animal cats and their son moved in. He had two emotional support animal dogs. Dogs chased the cats. Cats would hide up on top of the cabinets. They destroyed the cabinets. They destroyed the, the doors, the carpet. And we ended up $6,000 out of pocket and, and a lot of elbow grease getting that back up to where it should be. And at that point, we found out that the son had used an online purchased ESA letter. And we're like, man, there's got to be something out there that can flag these and so we searched and searched. There wasn't. We worked with several lawyers, came up with a, a way to, to be able to flag those and say, let the residents know, hey, this isn't considered reliable documentation. And found out other property managers wanted access to that as well. And so I partnered up with my uh, brother. He's had several tech startups. And so he's the technology guru. And I had the, the methods to do it. And that's how our business got started. Awesome. So I want to go back to what you started with that the, the purchase of a, a duplex, because obviously it's a real estate focused show. So I'm going to have, ask yeah. you about any investment that you had. Right. So was that first duplex? Was that a an intentional investment property or was that a, a residence as well? Yeah. So I lived in um, the top half and rented out the basement. 
Okay, so, nice. So you were doing the house hacking thing. Yep. Nice. And and that's such a great way I, I tell people in terms of getting started, you don't necessarily need a ton of money, but if you can find yourself a duplex or a triplex that's reasonable that you could afford, harder to do nowadays. But back then, I would have recommended anyone to house hack. And it's one of the things that I kind of regret I didn't do especially because as a, as a veteran, I had the VA loan accessible to me, which means I could put 0% down, which is just huge because a lot of vets don't know that you can use a VA loan for a duplex, triplex, even up to a quadplex, and sometimes even get the rents to help qualify you for the, the purchase of that house. So i just curious, how did that investment wind up working out for you more generally? Yeah, no, fantastic investment. And yeah, back then things were way cheaper than they are now. <laughs> but yeah, no, the rent that we collected paid for the mortgage, insurance, everything. And so basically you could look at it as rent free. We took and just doubled the payment every month to help um, pay it off quicker and be able to to grow in other ways. Yeah. And just for the audience, pets are a huge part of this business. And they may not understand that if they don't have pets themselves. If they do have pets, then they know if they've ever rented because, um, and it comes down to what you have as well, right? So I had a, a 90 pound Doberman and even trying to find a place to rent was a challenge, first of all, right? Because you have breed restrictions and say you can even find a place that will take Dobermans, then it's, oh, by weight, dogs only up to 30 pounds. And I'm like, that's a cat. That's not a dog as far as I'm concerned. So it was a challenge to find a place that would take dogs that big. And then you're paying a non-refundable pet deposit. Then you're paying $30, $40 a month pet rent. And those costs really start to add up both for the tenant, but for the owner as well in terms of revenue. And so that's what we're going to dive into in a little bit. But you obviously, as an entrepreneur, saw this need in the market. Was it primarily those property managers that you thought would be the best target audience for this service? Yeah. So the end beneficiaries are going to be the owners, right? Because the less damage, the less the tenants that have a lot of damage from these, and there's no way of recouping those expenses if they're not paying for those pet fees. And and being able to keep a tenant from coming in saying, hey, I have five emotional support animals in this one-bedroom apartment complex. If you don't have a way to curb that, you're going to end up with excess damage. You're going to end up more out of pocket. And that end up ends up coming out of the owner's pocket, but then also is a headache for the property managers. And they want to do as good a job for the owners as well. So we've been, it was the property managers more so requesting it, but on behalf of the owners as well. Yeah. And just so we can level set in terms of definitions, can you please break down the difference between an emotional support animal and an official service animal. Yeah. Yeah. So a service animal is a dog that has been trained to help alleviate symptoms of a disability. And it's protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it's required to be allowed in all public places. And so restaurants, stores, hotels, going to visit somebody at their house, etc. And then there's emotional support animals and they're regulated by the Fair Housing Administration. And there are some exemptions to that. And so when I had my duplex, because I was living in half of it, I was exempt from that. And so when they requested to have an emotional sport animal, I could let them know, hey, I, because I live in half of it and this isn't 
a business that was owned just under my personal name, I could say, I don't have to abide by those fair housing rules. And so what I did was I said, hey, there's a $300 non-refundable fee to have your animal. And that goes towards excess, extra cleaning and stuff when they move out. And, and they were all good with all the, and like I said, they're college couples and they're willing to pay the fee to have their cat there for six months, which surprised me, but they did it. And anyway, so that's the difference. And I'm, so emotional support animals only have rights in long-term housing. And so hotels, there, there are some legalities about it around like short-term housing. Is it their permanent housing at the time? Did they sell a house? They're living here for two weeks while they're moving to another house. So there are some gray areas there, but that's the difference. But when, when it comes to verifying those animals for service animals, they're broken down into two categories. They're broken down into one's tenants that have observable disabilities and tenants that have non-observable disabilities. And so if they have a non-observable disability, you can verify that animal in the same method that you verify emotional support animals. If it's an, if it's a visible or an obvious disability, a blind icing dog, a dog that pulls a wheelchair, et cetera then there's no reason to to verify it at that point. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I've had tenants who are under the VA program and PTSD, that's a non-visible thing, but those were still legitimate service dogs and I had to take that into account. Totally okay with that. From an owner's perspective, my biggest concern would be whenever I hear fair housing, especially is liability and ensuring that I'm treating everyone exactly the same across the board. So do you find that a lot of property management companies have a, a, a standard rule set into their, their leases? And if not, I imagine that's something that you recommend. Yeah. Yeah. So every property should have a, a process for that when it's requested. And we've interviewed people where they hired a new property manager. Um, the property manager knew it had a no pets policy. And fair housing, they do sting operations. And so they called acting like a potential tenant and said, hey, I'm interested, asked some questions and said, I have a dog. And he says, this is a no pets policy. There's another apartment complex that's, that allows pets. And they're like, oh, actually, it's an emotional support animal. And he still referred, hey, they have some dog amenities. You got to go apply over here. And five different times he referenced that, hey, they shouldn't apply. They should do something different. And anyways, the Department of Justice came back sued them. They started out at something crazy like $240,000 because they take each time, each, each time that he had said no and compounded it. So every time it happens, it gets bigger and bigger. They ended up settling for $62,000 out of pocket for that owner. And anyways, and it's stories like that have made property managers just say, Hey, if they have documentation, we'll approve them all. And that's what led to this problem of these online websites, being able to sell documentation because everyone's accepting it because if they don't have a good way to verify it. They'd rather accept it than not accept it because of that liability. Okay. Now that makes sense. And I guess my question is who, who does certify it? Is there an organization? Is there multiple organizations that can say, yay, verily this, this cat provides emotional support, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So for emotional support animals and even those non-observable service animals, it needs to be a healthcare professional, a licensed healthcare professional that could be a social worker, a counselor, a doctor, a nurse. Anyways, we've even uh, seen some from an eye doctor, which seemed interesting. But anyway, so a licensed healthcare professional. And to that point, it's someone that can be held responsible for, for they have ethics, they have to follow, et cetera. And so anyone can write them. 
but there is no registration service. But there are companies out there that will say, hey, come register your animal here. You get a card, an official card, and they make it seem like there is an official registry. And so they sell these, but it's all self-reported. So for $50, I can go add a picture of my pet, call it a service animal, and there's no verification process. And so those documents, tenants feel like there should be legitimate and they'll turn them in. And, it's, and so it's part of that's just ed- educating them, letting them know, hey, there needs to be a healthcare professional that can verify this. Okay. And that, and that makes sense because then, like you said, you can refer to that healthcare professional if there's any additional questions or, or just hold them responsible. Um, I guess, is there any guidelines when it comes to species? Because I've heard like crazy stories about, oh, this is my emotional support bow constrictor. This is my, you know, emotional support alpaca, whatever. It's just like all over the board. Is there any standard for the species of pets that qualify for either one of these um, categories? Yeah, and it's common household pets. And so your, which cats and dogs are the most common, but that also covers a rabbit, hamsters, etc. And so they have a list of them in the HUD guidelines, but it specifically excludes farm animals and pot-bellied pigs peacocks you see some of those those are all excluded from it and not allowed in some circumstances they can request to have an exotic animal and so we've seen like a ball python isn't listed in those common household um, pets but they are commonly sold at pet stores to be in and so there are some of those that you can follow up with the healthcare professional and say hey is there a specific reason that this specific type of animal needs to be used and if they confirm that it is and there can be a reasonable way for them to have it in the unit, then then you do need to work that out. Hey, Tim here. Now, you know, I don't have any ads on my podcast. I try to focus on having the best guests on the show and squeezing as many valuable insights as I can from each one. But I also want to make sure as many people as possible benefit. And that's where I need your help. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It really goes a long way toward getting it in front of others. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. Yeah. And so I keyed in on that. There are HUD guidelines associated with this. Is that right? Correct. Yep. In 2020, they came out with some guidelines. What was interesting, so the airline industry started tracking it really well. The number of emotional support animals and flying on airplanes and the issues that was causing. And it started all the way back in 2012. And so there were under a, a quarter million emotional support animals flying every year. And then these online websites come on, start selling all these letters for, hey, $49. You can purchase this letter. It'll work good for your airline. We're good for housing. Or they'd sell them separate, right? Hey, $49 for airline, $49 for housing, or buy them both together for $80, right? And they're all based on a, basically a questionnaire. And then some of them will have a short interview that they do to try and make it seem more legitimate. But in 2019, it got to where there were over a million of these flying on airlines and causing lots of problems where the airline industry came out and said, hey, no more, this is out of hand, we can't stop the fraud. And they shut it down. So even people with legitimate um, needs for an emotional support animal to deal with the anxiety of flying couldn't have them. The fraud ruined it for everybody else. HUD, I think, saw the writing on the wall. So in 2020, they came out with these guidelines saying, hey, here's some guidelines when it comes to emotional support animals. And they put a thing in there about documentation being purchased online and how if it is based on, it's a website advertising them for sale and it's based on a short, uh, on a questionnaire and or short interview, 
that by itself isn't considered reliable information. And so that's where we can go in and, and say, hey, we can prove that this was purchased from a website that was advertising these ESA letters based on a, a questionnaire and or short interview. And that's not considered reliable by itself. Do you have reliable documentation that we can put on file to approve this request? Otherwise, it needs to be considered a pet. All right. No, that's good context. So please walk me through in practical terms what your service looks like from start to finish. And a property manager calls you up, says, I'm having you know issues or concerns associated with um, these people and their pets, etc. What do you come in and do? And walk us through an example of, say, one tenant who they had a specific concern about and what actions you take and what the resolution is at the end of that. Yeah. And so um, so what we do is we'll get set up on all the properties or all the units. And so as soon as an applicant comes in through their application process, and they'll just, we make sure that they disclose whether they have an animal or not, whether their roommates have an animal or not. And any of those animals, we collect all the information, the picture, the breed, the weight, the rabies record. And if it's an assistance animal, we collect that documentation and we verify it and we let the resident know, here's why it is considered reliable or that it is considered reliable, or here are the specific reasons why it's not considered reliable. And we're having that communication with the resident. And so we take on that liability. And so anyway, so basically we get to protect those property managers at that point from making the wrong decision. Right. And anyway, so we let them know, hey, it needs to be con converted to a pet or it is a legitimate emotional support animal. And, and we have it all documented and it's transparent where the property manager can go on there and they can see where we verified it with the healthcare professional, the methods that we use to verify it. And so it's 100 percent transparent that, oh, this definitely is legitimate or we've explained the reasons why it wasn't legitimate. Right. And I guess does the tenant or potential tenant have recourse at, at that point, say if they found out maybe even unknowingly that the, the documents they got are, are not legit, that they can now go ahead and get legit documentation from a healthcare professional so that they don't lose potentially that, that spot. Yeah. Yeah. And so if they have a, and we let them know it needs to come from a healthcare professional that's worked with them and in their disability and they could provide reliable, a reliable treatment option. And so if they have a healthcare professional that has done that and some of them, and there are a certain percentage of the tenants that do purchase the online documentation, they did it because they weren't scheduled to go in, get into their healthcare provider sooner than later and they needed it for that. And so they're like, oh, I'll go do this other option since it's easier. And so we do have some of those that will provide reliable documentation. And once they realize that the online documentation isn't legitimate, yes, we walk them through, here's what's considered reliable documentation. And if you have reliable documentation, we can put it on file. If not, it needs to be considered a pet until there is reliable documentation. All right. And what is the cost structure associated with this? Is this a monthly service for the property managers or is this a case by case basis? Yeah, so, so we have several different options. There's one where the tenants with pets can pay a subscription fee for using our software. And then there's a small fee to the property. Or there's ones where, especially with multifamily properties, where the property will absorb the whole cost and not add an extra layer of fees to the tenants. But as long as you're charging a pet fee and you don't have really restrictive breed restrictions, like you were saying, a 30 pound weight limit is going to restrict 75% of the dogs coming into the property, right? And so 
we'd be turning more of them away than we would be converting them to pets. As long as your breed restrictions aren't restrictive, we'll guarantee a return on investment. And we'll be able to prove to you that we're making more money than we're costing, or we'll dial our price down until, until we are showing, hey, you're doubling your money here. Yeah. And I guess that's you know where I come in again from the owner side. How big of a problem is this? And how much of a return can property owners expect to earn from this? Because I get what you're saying about not wanting to pat. You don't want to nickel and dime tenants, right? Because that's just going to turn them away. They're going to they're be like, okay, I'll go check out another place. So if you got pet, pet rent, pet fee, pet verification fee on top of that, plus their application fee, eventually they're just going to be like, I'm done. I'm going somewhere else. So how do you often one, see it being implemented by the owners? And how much of a financial benefit do you see owners really getting from this problem? Yeah. And so it does go back, like I was saying, to which animals you do allow. The more restrictive you are, the less um, financial impact you're going to see increase. But yeah, so we have properties that before we rolled out on, they'll have three times as many emotional support animals as they do pets paying the fees, right? Um, as far as reliability goes, um, nationwide, we see less than 50% of all emotional support animal requests um, are reliable. Um, the larger majority of them being purchased online. Some of them are submitting documentation that's a couple years old. And when we follow up with the healthcare professional, they say, no, this um, documentation is too old. Don't consider it reliable. They would need a reevaluation. Anyway, so there's several things in there that would cause it not to be reliable. But we're seeing it somewhere between 40 and 43%, depending on, on the size that, that we pulled from that. But that's what we're seeing currently as far as being reliable with that 57 to 60% being not reliable. Yeah. And I guess just clarification for me. So if someone has either an emotional support animal or a service animal, are they, are one or both of those exempt from additional pet fees? Yeah. So both of them are exempt from pet fees, oh. whether that's a pet deposit or a monthly pet rent or a non-refundable fee, they're exempt from all of those. You wow. still can collect damages from it, right? So if you do a mid-lease inspection, that they've created damage. And this goes back to having a good, a really good property management company. One thing I think your listeners will find intriguing. So we were trying to find um, data on how much pet damage occurs. And mo most properties just lump it in with damage, right? And so they don't separate out pet damage from tenant damage. But we found 90 different companies that have what's called a pet guarantee to where the property managers keep some of that pet rent in exchange for guaranteeing that if there is damage above and beyond the security deposit, they'll cover $1,500 of it, $2,500 of it, $5,000 of it. And so we went and, and pulled their information and said, hey, out of the last two years, how many times have you had to pay out on this? How much did you have to pay out? And how many animals do you have enrolled in your pet guarantee? And we found some that had 300 pets enrolled in their pet guarantee and in the last six years had never paid out on it. And we all know that there's pet damage, right? And so we were like, hey, what's your secret sauce here? And they said really good mid-lease inspections. And when they do find damage, they get it quoted immediately. And they give the tenant an option to say, do you want to pay for it all now and fix it now? Or do you want to increase your security deposit until your lease is ready to renew to where it can be fixed then? And we have that pool of money sitting there to do. And because they're doing that, they'd never had excessive pet damage in that regard, and it never had to pay out on it. 
Interesting. Yeah. I, obviously, like I said, I can attest to the damage that pets are capable of doing, but I think the big highlight there that I, I probably should have questioned at the beginning of the show was you cannot charge pet rent or pet deposits to emotional support animals or service animals because that's a huge piece right there. Yep. Okay. Hey, we do have to transition to the turbo round now, so get ready for that. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you three questions that I ask every guest I have on the show, and I just ask for a quick, honest answer. You ready? Ready. All right. First one. What is one red flag every investor should look out for? Yeah, when it's too good to be true. <laughs> yeah, we hear that a lot. <laughs> All right. I absolutely agree with you, and, and I've probably been a victim of that myself. But yeah, if it's too good to be true, it, it probably is. All right. What is a myth about this business that you would like to set straight? Like a lot. So we find companies that with 90 plus thousand units that aren't verifying these ESA letters because they don't feel it's worth worth their time. And so one thing we've gone down and proven, especially in a multifamily property, it's definitely worth your time, right? And so we're able to show those return on investments and the money gained from that. So I'd say that's the biggest myth in, in my industry anyways. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. All right. Final question. What does success look like to you? Yeah, the, the amount of input or the amount of effort put in is a lot less than the benefits that you get out of it or the reward that comes from it. And so whatever you're doing, I look at those two and that will determine the success. Okay. Yeah. We haven't heard that one before. Nice. All right. Hey, Logan, this has been really interesting. I, I think you probably dropped some knowledge bombs on some owners and tenants who just haven't really heard this topic discussed before, right? Please tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you and if there's anything else that you'd like to share with them. Yeah, reach out to us at Our Pet Policy, support at ourpetpolicy.com or my personal email is logan at ourpetpolicy.com. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And anyways, I love talking pets. I love hearing other people's stories and, and looking at the data. So I'm a numbers-driven person. Anyways. I appreciate you having me on here, Tim, and asking great questions. And yeah, I feel like hopefully your listeners get a lot of good value out of this. Yeah, they definitely will. So we'll have all that information in, uh, in the show notes so they can get a hold of you. I appreciate you coming on, and I definitely look forward to continuing to see you do big things on your journey. Yay. And, and same for you, Tim. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. You do. You've been listening to the Journey to Multifamily Millions podcast with host Tim Little. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review as well to help us reach more people like you. For more information on how you can start your journey to multifamily millions, visit ZanaInvestments.com. And remember, every journey starts with a single step and there's always more to learn.